What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. But I could have gotten Josh on board with calling the podcast uh, the Pidcast. That would have been good. I would think we probably need to start saying that. Yeah. But I feel like there's just lots of additional pun opportunities. Let us conglomerate (laughs) all the puns. So we call it a Pidcast. Yeah, just grow the the Marvel Cinematic Universe of references to this show. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Puns puns all the way down. This could be the Avengers of... The, of, of your Avengers podcast, and you could have other ones that are. Just, I like this idea. Just a couple of people, and that could be the Pidcast. Avengers, or did you say Eventers? Oh, well played. Gross, gross, gross. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Beam Radio. Once again, we are joined by our fabulous panel of hosts. We have Lars Vicklin. Hello. Hey, Lars, welcome. We've got Stephen Nunez. Hello. Hey, Stephen and Josh Adams. It's a me. That's good. Thank you for mixing it up. Uh, we are also joined by Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Alex, as well as Bruce Tate. Welcome, Bruce. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. So we have got a great episode for you guys today. We have got our very first, I believe, special guest appearance, but I won't spoil it. I'll let Alex, who is our main host for the day, introduce our guest in just a few minutes. Before we move on, though, I would love to get some updates from our fantastic sponsor, Graxio. Bruce, what's new with Graxio? So right now we are working through the basic math behind machine learning, and that means that we're kind of looking at models and breaking down a neural net to the basic primitives of multiplication and function calls and broadcast addition. It's really pretty straightforward, but the math behind machine learning is kind of dense and it has a lot of vocabulary around it. So we're breaking it down for programmers to open it up to the rest of the community. Yeah, very cool, very exciting. I think I mentioned this last time we heard an update from you guys, but especially with the introduction of NX. I'm sure there are many people out there like me that are very interested in starting to dig into machine learning, but never really got the math part right, uh, maybe back in the day in school. So I'm really excited to check that out. And I hope that our listeners do too. All right, one more uh, fun thing before we move into our main topic and our special guest for today. We got a fan question. We're so excited. So I think we've uh, mentioned this a couple times in recent episodes and we've tweeted it out, but we want to hear from you guys. We want to hear from our listeners. We want you to submit your questions so you can at Beam Radio 1 on Twitter, ask us anything your heart desires, and we will answer it within reason. And we are now calling this uh, the Beam Radio Process Mailbox, and we've actually received a message in that mailbox, and I am going to pass it over to Bruce to introduce our very exciting fan question. Take it away, Bruce. Yeah, so this question comes from Macbool from India, and Macbool actually uh, guided me around Bangalore when I was there, when I was in India for the conference there. The question is, how do you count reductions? And this is a telemetry OTP process kind of question. And I think that Josh is probably the best one to answer this question. So uh, I've added a link to the show notes to a talk by Brian Hunter at ElixirConf 2017 called Elixir by the Bellyful, where he goes into great detail into how the scheduler in the Erlang VM works. But basically, uh, this you, you spin up a certain number of schedulers. And in general, it looks like one per, per CPU core plus some others, uh, maybe. And uh, those schedulers each are going to get a queue of processes. And so they're going to go through the queue. They just have a, like a list. And they go from the top to the bottom of the list. And each process gets 2,000 reductions is the default. You can change this in the VM. 
but since R13, it's been 2000. Yeah, that's it. So it'll go through 2000 reductions. A reduction in general is a function call in Erlang. So if a process makes a function call, boom, that's a reduction in general. Uh, but if you have a NIF or a BIF, they have to sort of tell the scheduler how many, how many reductions they should count as at a particular portion. Um, and then once you hit 2000, the scheduler is going to pause the process. It's not going to move forward anymore until the scheduler gets back to it. So that's, that's the whole thing. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. I certainly learned something new and I'm definitely going to dig into this link that we'll be including in the show notes. So thank you, Josh. All right. So I think we are ready for the main event. Our host for the day is Alex Kumos. And Alex, I'm going to hand it over to you to introduce our very special guest. Go ahead. Sure thing. Yeah, today's a very, uh, very special episode. We have our very first Beam Radio uh, guest on the show today. And um, you may know him as the author of the Open Job Processing Library, Parker Selbert. How's it going, Parker? Great. Thanks, Alex. Nice to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Uh, so for those who you know may not know you outside of your work, uh, uh, you know, on Open, you know, can you tell us, uh, you know, where you're at, what you're working on, and uh, maybe what your Elixir story looks like? Sure. Uh, so where I'm at uh, in the world right now happens to be outside of Chicago, though um, my family does like to travel a lot. And so that would be unusual most years. But for the past year or so, we've hung out at our home base a lot. Um, I am a partner with my wife. Uh, we run Soren and Soren makes Oban and Oban Pro and those things. Um, and I'm also a staff engineer at DScout, which is a mobile research company based in Chicago, where I um, I contracted for about nine years and have been a full-time employee for the past one year. So it took a long time. It was like a, a really long wedding proposal and then finally sealing the deal. I got into Elixir. Uh, actually, I got into Erlang first, and that was directly related to Bruce's book, Seven Languages in Seven Weeks. Went through all of the various languages there, tried them out, got really into Erlang, read Joe Armstrong's um, initial book, um, but just couldn't find a way to actually apply Erlang. And at the time, I was following uh, Tony Arcieri's blog. Tony had been working on a different Erlang Ruby kind of mashup, and kind of he ended up seeing it was called yeah, Raya, Raya, right? Yeah, and he saw uh, what Jose was doing with Elixir and said, "I give up. This one's too good." And around that time, I, I started checking it out, and I, I don't think I really got any traction with it until about the time that Dave's book came out, and. Um, at that point, I, I went through the whole thing and then just started writing libraries in it and managed to squeeze it in at dscout because we were doing notifications that we had been using socket JS for and it crashed all the time. It was really, really horrible. And so rewrote it as straight Phoenix channels. This is I'm skipping over a little bit of the learning process there, but that's really where professionally I, I got to start using it on a fairly regular basis. And so that that's kind of what kicked that off. So what kind of differences did you notice in, in production after you started deploying your Elixir stuff? Oh, stability. Uh, <laughs> it never went down. It, it never crashed. I mean, it, well, if it did crash, we didn't notice it. But it, it, even, even back then, and this is probably um, six years ago, maybe more, seven years ago, even then, it, it just was pretty seamless. And eventually, we started moving other things over to it, leading to finally just a new version of our API and we started shifting things over and that's still a process that's going on and it's been four and a half years now. Uh, so very slow, but very steady. 
Yeah, it's funny. So that we had a very similar experience with, with hey, this thing never crashes and, and we barely have to do any monitoring at all until we checked our logs and we saw like thousands of crashes a day that nobody ever noticed, right? Um, because it just, it did the right thing, right? It's, did you try turning it off and on again? Yeah, and we, we wouldn't, uh, I think this is before Honey Badger. We use Honey Badger just for historic reasons. And um, I don't think we ever even got notifications about something going wrong, which made us think maybe we didn't hook this up right or we're missing something, but it just turned out that it worked seamlessly. So I know that's, that's what, not that how it exactly goes. the use case I had for my first Elixir production application. And it was exactly my story, which is it ran for a really long time. And then the startup CTO called me and said, hey, can I shut this machine down? And I was like, no, it's like one of your core features. He was like, why have I never heard of it? So that was his experience <laughs> with Elixir. He didn't know he was running it. Yeah, I've definitely been in that situation before where in a, uh, we had a microservices architecture, our previous company, and there were a whole slew of different services. Some were Node, some were Python, Elixir, Golang. I know that's uh, Sophie and uh, Steven's favorites. And uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I, you know, I don't know I don't know what it is, but the, uh, the Elixir services never went down and were really boring. And after they were written and deployed, people rarely touched them unless they needed new features. So that's, uh, I think that's one of my favorite features of, uh, of the language. So you said that you started writing um, uh, libraries as kind of like your, your entryway into Elixir. Uh, did you start off with Open or did you write some other libraries that are uh, maybe out in the wild? I did not start out with, with Open. Um, started writing things that I needed fairly directly. Um, so the Braintree Elixir library, uh, an implementation of temporary, which is just a temp file kind of thing, which is mostly what plug adds, but I needed it outside of a plug context. Um, a feature toggling library that has multiple backends. And then um, initially, because we at dscout had been running Rails for so long and relied heavily on Sidekick, I needed a way to enqueue jobs in Rails and have them run, but also vice versa. So we could start porting things from Ruby over to Elixir. And so I created a library called Kick. And at the time, there were other Sidekick compatible libraries like XQ but they didn't have any of, of Sidekick's pro or enterprise features. And some of those things we really needed. And so I started porting those um, and got pretty into the weeds with some of those features. And eventually it was too complicated to maintain and also just didn't really get much community adoption, uh, which is okay. Um, but that was about two years ago, and that's around the time that Redis Streams came out. And so I looked at, I did a spike actually in Kick to port it to Redis Streams. And the idea of Streams is kind of taken from Kafka, uh, but it's that you have this infinite stream, you can have as many consumers as you want, and then things stick around afterwards, and you can eventually compact them, or you can go and rewind them and observe them. And in doing that, I realized a lot of the features that were in Kick that were important, like scheduling jobs or doing retries. And uh, it just didn't really work actually with that kind of stream. And that was the point where I transitioned it and made it into something different and made it into open. Gotcha. Yeah, Redis is Redis is interesting. There's a lot of projects that are uh, kind of like derivatives of Redis that I've never even heard of. Streams I've never heard of until you brought it up. But then there's also like a full text search in, in Redis as well. And uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting project. And I know we, we bag on Redis every once in a while and say that we don't need it in our projects, but it's, it is a pretty interesting piece of tech and there's there's quite a lot there. 
we used it for set math on an API one point and using Reddit, using Redis to do set math on stuff in memory is like in language other than other than Elixir, it's it's pretty impossible to to beat in Elixir. I'd, I'd still reach for it for some of the stuff we were doing. So I think the uh, the story of going from Erlang to Elixir is a pretty unique one. Uh, I mean, we hear a lot of people coming from like Ruby and uh, you know going to Elixir. Uh, I have a pretty weird one going from Java to Elixir and, and missing the whole Ruby train. But uh, you know, what were what were some of the things that you noticed going from from Erlang to Elixir? And uh, you know, do you think that made you a, a better Elixirist? Where there's some things that you had to you know unlearn, like you know rebinding variables, or how's that uh, how's that experience? I was really doing Ruby. And so that's how I knew of Jose in the first place and, and all that. It was this side interest about Erlang that I had I had looked into it, but I wasn't really writing any Erlang. And honestly, you know, you can read an entire book. Like I, I read all of Joe Armstrong's book, but because I wasn't doing it in practice, that just didn't stick at all. And so it wasn't until later when I came back across things, when I realized, oh, that's what this was actually about. That's what they were talking about. Um, and even back then, I listened to um, an older podcast, the Mostly Erlang podcast, and they would have conversations about things like binaries versus strings. And at the, I, I really didn't know what they were talking about until later on when I was doing it all the time or it started with Elixir. And, and the difference was really important. Uh, so one of the things that you know, really impresses me about the Elixir community is how uh, library authors do a really good job of you know, kind of leveraging all the tools at their disposal to make a really, really great uh, developer experience. Um, one of these things that we've seen kind of recently is, you know, NX really pushing uh, the limits with macros and you can, depending on your uh, environment, get the Elixir code that compiles natively or the GPU or do Elixir. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Live is another good case where we get like a, like a single page application experience, but uh, you know, on the, on the server side, uh, and I think I think Open does a phenomenal job of of really pushing those uh, those limits with what you can get done with uh, you know just Postgres, and it really simplifies kind of the tech stack. All you have is your your backend and Postgres, and you have a, an amazing uh, job processing uh, library at your disposal. You know, we kind of dove into some of the things that led to uh, creating Open, but. Um, where you know where do you see it fitting into your stack you know have you you know really pushed its limits and seen you know this is the this is how far you can go with open and then after this you kind of need some other tools uh, you know what's that kind of look like well i can say at d scout we are really heavily background job dependent we do a lot of media processing a lot of asynchronous um, message kind of calculating digests and broadcasting things out and so i'd say there we have over 50 background jobs uh, and a pretty elaborate auto-scaling thing to handle surges and media processing. So we'll scale up to quite a number of, of media processors. Um, and so that's pushed it a little bit, but just being, uh, there's an open Slack channel in the Elixir Slack and a lot of people from around the community hang out there. And so I hear a lot of various use cases and troubleshoot a lot of things. And so I know that some people run millions of jobs a day, um, up to 20 million jobs a day. And so that's pushing it much farther than I expected people to be able to push it. And then in some situations, um, people are using what are more pro features to do batches and these things. And some people have batches of a million jobs where it's doing multiple batches in sequence and then calculating something at the end of that. 
So it has scaled farther than I than I expected it to be able to, um, especially when you involve a dedicated database. I know cars.com, for example, has was a pretty early adopter due to some vocal support from Chris McCord. And they even run everything with the dedicated database, but because they can still use Ecto, they've managed to scale that in a way where it doesn't impact their, their primary application. And I know other places, say your bleacher report size reliance, something like Kafka, uh, I think they have a much more bespoke set of needs there. And it isn't really that they just want to offload things and coordinate them. So I think that for the most part, I haven't heard people moving away from it due to Postgres not being able to support it. It's when people have had some other need or because they just really want to use Rabbit or something else. So this is cool to me because it, because it looks in some ways like the language enables the infrastructure and the pair of those two together kind of attract a community that you wouldn't normally have attracted, right? So that to me is, is an exciting sign of Elixir's adoption. I think that's very accurate. The, and the perceived simplicity of it, the fact that you're still just using your, your own Postgres, which so many people are in anybody who has a web app, maybe not anybody, but I would say 19 out of 20 are using Postgres in some way. So it provides a pretty seamless way to layer on this persistence and horizontal scaling on top of something. And it would not be possible without Elixir. I mean, many of the features would not be possible without Elixir. Yeah, I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. And I think um, I'm not at all surprised to hear frankly, what a massive scale Oban is already dealing with. And uh, I sort of anticipated you saying that there are things that are possible because of Elixir, but yeah, like what, for example, and how, what do you feel like Elixir has really lent to Oban? So I'll, I'll back into this and saying, and well, in, in retelling a brief anecdote. Um, so Jose contacted me months ago and was talking about this notion of, of doing streams um, in a replacement for Kafka purely in Postgres that would do this kind of stream type processing. And then we ended up talking about whether you could do something purely in SQL uh, so that you could share it between multiple languages. And that led me to actually take much of Oban's functionality and re-implement it purely in Postgres SQL, which went amazingly far. And then when I took that and I tried to transplant it into other languages like Python or Ruby, it became apparent how much things that we really take for granted in, uh, in the Beam enable these certain features. So, getting into some of those, just the fact that we have dedicated processes and supervision trees where I can coordinate processes and just have them, you know, so a, a queue in Oban is really a supervision tree. And that supervision tree has three primary processes, one of which is a supervision tree, and it can manage these children. And just the process of doing that and not having the failure in one thing cascade up is pretty much impossible to replicate somewhere else. But even really small things, like I want to have something that happens every one second. And in Elixir or Erlang, that's just send a message to myself one second from now, a thousand milliseconds from now. And it just keeps working. And if it crashes, it will start back up. That's, you can't do that somewhere else. You can send, you can set a timeout in something like 
um, Python or Ruby, but it will still possibly just crash your process or interrupt whatever you happen to be doing. And so you have to make really complicated data structures to just keep track of time. And the idea of having something that just runs on an infinite loop and kicks things off, uh, you'd have to have a thread pool and then you can't spread that across multiple processes. So how do you have that utilize all of a computer? So we get so much uh, vertical and horizontal scaling and stability from the beam that you can't get somewhere else. And that seems to be a running theme on, on this podcast, the idea of turtles all the way down, where it's not just that the abstraction is good, it's that the abstraction is uniformly applied, right? So if if you have OTP that some that's that's as excellent as it is today, but it isn't uni universally applied across like all projects that need this kind of thing, it doesn't really matter. But because a a certain percentage a very large percentage of, of the applications and, and dependencies in the ecosystem subscribe to these, these tools and, and use them. And, and this, this whole failure doesn't just propagate to Oban, but also to the libraries that you depend on and, and the libraries that depend on you. It makes it really, really cool. I agree. And I think other libraries that have come in and become sort of standards, most notably telemetry, enables so much beyond just our ability to monitor things, but also, or to build really beautiful graphs or to generate alerts. Uh, but it's been really central to the way that Open works as well. And that we can have logging or anything that a end user or an application wants without modifying the core library at all. And consistent abstractions across the community enable so much of this. Yeah, and I think that's it dovetails with this other theme that's sort of been woven a bit throughout many of the conversations we've had so far, which is that uh, this is really the reason why Elixir is such a strong contender for solving so many problems across the board. Like you mentioned, the telemetry tooling, you know, your ability to make fault tolerance a first class citizen within how you manage your, your queues and this messaging system. And I'm sure this won't be the first such shout out in this episode, but I particularly enjoyed the discussion in your talk at Codebeam about your, I think you called it queue graceful shutdown or something like that. And you kind of described how each queue is a supervision tree and how that gives you the ability, not just to say that, okay, the system is fault tolerant, but to control how it behaves under failure circumstances to say, under these circumstances, I want related producers to stop or related consumers to stop. And I think having that fine grained control is something that the Beam gives you, that Elixir gives you, and it makes a tool like this really, really powerful, really flexible. Yeah, that's how the, the original idea from that actually came from how uh, Cowboy shuts down. So Cowboy, you can have it drain the queue, the connection queue, and it uses a similar, I mean, it's in Erlang, but it uses a similar looping kind of construct and the fact that it knows exactly how many processes are out there, which is also just amazing. If I was in some other language, am I going to count the threads? I'd have no idea what that thread was doing or if it was actually finished. And so... I think in that case, in other languages, you end up just having cascading exits. You try to hold something and then exit, and we don't have to deal with all that mess. And I think that's brilliant. Yeah, Erlang got the abstractions and primitives right for building really cool stuff. And uh, I've definitely had a good experience with what I've done so far with Open. Uh, so I did some client work where they were transitioning off of 
uh, an unmaintained or a less maintained uh, worker library, work queue library, uh, and they wanted to give Oban a whirl. And it was it was just uh, follow the guide, set it up. It was very straightforward as a process. Uh, then like, okay, time to do some tests. Yeah, yeah, okay, test coverage is there. It's it's easy enough to, to test these things. Uh, there are some special considerations when when working with tests, sort of the queues generally don't run by themselves, which also makes it easier to control the test state. And then uh, we actually wanted to go into to having Open Web and paying for the pro version of Open. Uh, and I mean, just having having this live updating view of all the work that's going on is a is a really exciting and also just straight up fun uh, part of of running a system on top of this. So, yeah, I I've definitely had good experiences with Open so far. And uh, the thing you mentioned about telemetry, one of the things we need to do, like, okay, we need to find out if these things fail. Like, how do we pick that up? Is there a log message? No, we just pick up the telemetry event and then we log whatever we want to log based on the tele telemetry event. Yeah, that's a, that's a word I can pronounce, I promise. Because whatever we want to log, like if, if your library was producing a lot of logging for us, that could be a problem. Uh, I think everyone's aware of the cost of sort of just pushing infinite logs to a single service. But no, you pick it up via telemetry and you can decide what to do with it. And yeah, it's it was really delightful to transition to. Uh, I was slightly surprised because I'd never encountered it before then. I think that was the first time that I actually had spoken to you, Lars, as you said, uh, I'm, I'm doing this work for five dashboards that they need to look at. And I, this is, <laughs> that was the first I've ever heard of somebody having that many different dashboards between services. And so if I remember, I think you ended up making a switcher so that they could jump between dashboards and view totally isolated instances doing different things. Uh, so I thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was definitely a bit of an uncommon topology in that sense. Um, I do believe we have uh, a few of a few open web instances running there. Uh, the sort of central system definitely is using the the web part, and I know a few of them. We haven't exposed them simply because we don't need to. Uh, and the setting up the internal uh, auth and stuff was was uh, too much hassle. Uh, but that's none, none of Open's fault at that point. And it is all um, entirely pedal stack too. So it's, that made it fun to develop. It's actually really easy. It's delightful when you get to focus on just adding those little details because it's so easy to extend and work on and test. Yeah, the, uh, the the Open Pro demo is pretty cool. I, I, I go to the, your, your website every once in a while just to click on the demo to see how nice of an experience it is. So I, I, I do love that. And um, yeah, just to kind of piggyback on what you guys are saying, the, the fact that we have this phenomenal community tooling, I think really enables library authors and the community to really do, uh, to really build cool things. Like the fact that we have telemetry as a, like a ubiquitous language for, uh, um, you know, communicating internal library events, amazing. Uh, the fact that we have tools like uh, like Ecto, which you make pretty heavy use of in uh, 
you know, in uh, Oban and the fact that you can interleave your Oban calls with your other uh, Ecto um, uh, operations, amazing. So I think, I think that we have these, I think the fact that we have these community tools and the fact that everyone's, you know, coming together and driving them forward is a really big, uh, really big win. So I had a quick question. Um, I think a lot about like multi, maybe because I'm, I'm a uh, masochist or something, but I think about supporting multiple languages on an ecosystem. Uh, Sophie and I run a, a workshop every once in a while on building greenfield Elixir applications. And the central tenet of it is building uh, asynchronous messaging between systems that sort of uh, makes the source of the message not matter. We get a job, we do a thing. Um, do you see Oban as a good tool for doing that. So you, in theory, want to bring up a messaging system and you want to, again, make these messages, the source not matter, whether they come from Ruby and you're transitioning to a better platform, say, for instance, Elixir, do you see, aside from not having supervisors and all the, the beautiful things we have in Elixir, could you build an adapter for Ruby to send messages that are Oban compliant? And what, what would be difficult there? Yeah, there are two answers to that. So there's the immediate answer of it's really easy to put jobs in, which is something that we do at DScott. We actually have a really thin wrapper that's just an active model uh, that we just shoot a, something into the open jobs table and we can run it. And that's partially why there's no, um, there's no binary term. So there are no Erlang terms stored in Postgres. It's only JSON and JSONB. And that allows well, one, it's easy to look at when you want to go review things. Uh, two, you can actually index it, which is brilliant. And three, it means that you can stick those in from other languages. Uh, so there is very much a down the road plan to hopefully extend open into a few other languages, um, largely to facilitate, to just foster. People don't necessarily have the ability to rewrite something or want to rewrite something, or hopefully they're wise enough to know it's not the best way to do it. And it, it could be also that you just have other, you have something that you need that runs in Go, or you have something that runs in Python, or maybe even Julia, where you want to have centralized communication, but you still want to do it through a database and not through some other message broker where you have to build things on top of it. So that is a down the road dream, but hard to do. Uh, and as I mentioned, I, I actually started. So maybe one day I can resume trying that. Yeah, I'm definitely gratified to hear that you guys are using like a light wrapper to produce or insert these messages because I feel like it's one of these things that uh, I think or I hope will drive Elixir adoption. And it's kind of the theme behind the workshop that Stephen was mentioning that he and I teach every now and then, which is that, you know, let's say you've got your monolith that does 100 responsibilities and you want to start pulling out some of those responsibilities into smaller services in order to introduce something like, let's say a Greenfield Elixir application. You know, that Elixir app can be running open and full and be consuming these messages and uh, orchestrating all these background workers, but you still need to be producing them, let's say from the monolith so that you can start emitting these messages and uh, getting to a place where you're making your monolith smaller and bringing up new services that can start taking over from some of those responsibilities iteratively. So uh, it sounds like Oven would potentially yeah, be a good fit for a scenario like that. Hopefully, I, I hope to make that more of a, a case, especially as 
uh, I think machine learning is going to be just a bigger and bigger story. And so much of, if you watch the NX channel on Slack, a lot of it is people saying, I have this big Python model. How can I translate it or move it over or transition? And people don't typically have one big Python model. They have a lot. And so whatever can help people move these asynchronous parts of their application into the Elixir ecosystem, um, I think that that's just all the better. And what's pretty pretty cool about the machine learning scenarios is that you don't have to do everything in your machine learning stack on uh, on Elixir, right? So you can you can train the models, you could actually build them somewhere else, and then then run them on the Elixir side. Um, and that's that's a really cool scenario. I really like where you're going with that thought, Parker. Thanks. Yeah, at, at D Scott, we have um, we run Python purely for some machine learning stuff. It's it's textural processing, a lot of spacey, which we don't have anything close to an alternative solution for in Elixir. But I can dream that in the future, we achieve spacey parity with, within the BNB ecosystem. Yeah, I have found that Elixir is great. Even if you don't tackle your primary business case in Elixir, it is great for orchestrating kind of these, these external things. Do, do you run like these Python bits uh, like via, was it Earl Pi or are they just kind of like separate services and you talk through uh, a message queue or something? They're separate services and we talk through a, a message queue. Uh, just, it was an easier way to scale them separately from, from the Elixir side of things. And we have just some, also some legacy constraints about the size of our images and how many languages we have actually within any of those images and things that are just technical boring details of, of legacy infrastructure. I agree though. I think, I think that as an orchestration framework, the beam is just uh, unbeatable. So one thing that I find interesting with Oban is that it does some, what I'd call less common uh, SQL stuff, especially Postgres stuff where it's not just selects and creates and updates. It seems you really get into the feature set of Postgres. Could you touch on some of those special sources you've you've been using there? Because I, I feel like what it does is not necessarily what you would expect for just your bog standard, like put something in there, check if there's work to be done, kick off work but rather it seems like you actually thought things through and used the tools that were available, which is interesting. Yeah, there are a few features of Postgres that make it make open possible and possible in a way where it actually can scale to a, a lot horizontally and, and vertically. So you can run um, hundreds of concurrent jobs across dozens of different nodes, all from the same queue and you can have everything stored in the same table. And a lot of those things come from what, what I call modern Postgres, even though it's really not that modern, considering that I think Postgres is on version 14 now and Open works with anything since uh, version 9.6. Uh, there are great features since then that we can't really utilize, but uh, so a few of them that are part of the quote unquote special sauce is uh, select for update. So the idea is that it used to be that if you wanted to have uh, concurrent consumers from the same table and you wanted to pull jobs out of it, you had to take locks of some kind and even very fast advisory locks, which are application determined uh, lock values, even that you'd end up with these really big tables and it would have to scan through locks and there'd be this contention. 
And a while back now, as of Postgres 9.6 or whatever, uh, it got the ability to very efficiently have different transactions select from things and immediately ignore something if it's already fetched. So that means that most times when it goes to fetch jobs, when, by it, I mean a producer, when a queue producer goes to fetch jobs, it takes a millisecond, maybe two milliseconds. So it's really fast to pull things out of it. And another aspect that you might be referring to, which is that Open is pretty much all in on PubSub and particularly Postgres listen, notify PubSub, which is hugely, hugely useful. So it's, it's amazing that distributed Erlang is out there and great for those that have it set up and working for them, but it takes a while to actually get that working, uh, especially as you, as you grow out. And when you're using something like Postgres, that's already a centralized database, if you can leverage the fact that you have a centralized database and you have this consistency, that just makes operations so much easier. And so by using the listen, notify centralized PubSub, it makes it easy to notify queues that they have a job available or to just do things that are communication. So in the, in the UI or just even through a manual operation, I can say, I want to stop or kill a job or cancel a job that's in flight. And that message gets broadcast out as PubSub and then picked up and all of the nodes and the nodes all say, am I running this job? And then they go in and kill that job, which simplifies just the communication and the flow between things. And that's pretty much how all of it works. Starting queues, stopping queues, killing jobs, notifying about jobs, it all has this centralized mechanism. And I'd say that's the, the biggest place where totally have leveraged what Postgres has available. Very nice. Uh, and yeah, that's that's sort of been my experience with building for Elixir as well. Like if you can make something send you an event, <laughs> you can do very cool stuff. Uh, and in this case, I think it's a, a very good uh, effort to, since Oban already builds on having this one source of truth in the database, leveraging that to not force people into Erlang distribution because Elixir is a perfectly sensible choice for a shared nothing sort of architecture, the sort of standard web app backed by a database where the database is the only shared source of data. Uh, you can absolutely do that with, with Elixir and it's a nice comfortable pattern. Uh, and I think, I think you're making a mistake if you absolutely force people into using distributed Erlang because that brings a bit of complexity. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a, again, something we get back to a lot. Pragmatic choices, uh, like incredibly useful real world choices. I think that links into what we were talking about before a little bit too, is that people can't necessarily, not all Elixir apps start as a greenfield thing or they're, they're ported from something else. And in reality, we aren't all running in our own little open cluster or on GigaLixer or something, a lot of applications are running on Heroku. Um, just, just going by people that are open pro subscribers, I know that 40% of apps are actually running in Heroku. And that's a lot of people that can't make use of distributed Erlang at all. And so if you had that as a requirement, it would be a non-starter for them to adopt open or, or other parts. So. That's what's great about say Phoenix channels. You can, you don't have to use PG. You don't have to use process groups. You can use Redis. You can use even 
Postgres. You can use other things that ease the adoption. Kind of piggyback back on the you know the leveraging of, of Postgres and really taking its uh, its features to the limits. Uh, as a version open you know two four, uh, you published some some pretty amazing uh, uh, performance uh, benchmarks. Can you talk about those benchmarks and you know how did you you know discover these bottlenecks? How did you solve them? And then at the end, how did you uh, kind of validate your hypotheses there? If I remember correctly, in that release, there were three separate wins three separate big numerical kind of features that I could chart or brag about. And one of them came from re-implementing the cron plugin. So the parser for the cron plugin used to be written in Nimble Parsec. And Nimble Parsec is beautiful, but I didn't want that to be a requirement for people. So it pre-compiled this 12,000 line file that would then be compiled every time that somebody's, you know, included open in their application. So in writing a pure SQL cron parser before for that project I referenced, uh, I learned that it's actually not that hard to do it using some other pattern matching and expressions and, uh, and rewrote it to be dramatically smaller. Uh, so there wasn't a performance gain from that, but it is a much smaller package. And that was a complaint that I'd seen from a, a few people of, I don't want to use cron, why do I? And so much of the codes, the code base is actually dedicated to this. And well, that's not true anymore. It's it's actually really small now. So hopefully eliminating that as a blocker or a barrier for somebody to adopt it. Um, another one of the smaller wins, it had a big and outsized performance gain compared to how similar it was, but it was adding indexes uh, using gin indexes, which is a generalized inverted search index, which you can use for JSON. So there was a new meta column and there's an args column on the, on the table. And those are used for other features, one of those being unique jobs. So to, to have uniqueness after something runs, you can actually compare args. So I can see if I put this arg in here with ID one, and then I wanna put a new job in, it can go in. It used to scan that. And the idea being that people didn't have millions of jobs in the table, they only had 10,000 or something. And it turns out uh, people have a lot of jobs and inserting a new unique job could be a really big deal. So by adding these unique, well, not, sorry, not unique index, adding these gin indexes, it dramatically sped up unique insertion with only a really marginal hit on inserting things. And so some of those charts actually show that the throughput benchmark of how fast you can insert things and pull things out. And for the most part, that was just a net win. And then the third feature there is moving from polling across all producers to polling in a plugin. And the notion there is that there are scheduled jobs. I can insert something in the future with up to one second resolution and say, I want this to run in a minute or two minutes. And previously each producer just when it started up say it's for the default queue. And it would have to look every second to see, is there a scheduled job which I can now transition to available in process. And as you can imagine, that doesn't scale out that well. If you, want to, if you want to run dozens or hundreds of queues across a bunch of nodes, if every one of them every second is going and making a request to the database, you end up with contention in your ectopool. And it doesn't really matter how fast that is. You just have this queue time problem because people aren't typically running 100, they don't have 100 um, connections in their ectopool. They have 20 or 30. And so there was an outsized scale problem there. And so the big win there was to actually invert that and make there just be a plugin 
the stager plugin and the stager plugin just watched the queues and would go look for for jobs that were scheduled and then broadcast out to any any queue that had available jobs to let it know to go fetch things and that hugely reduced the number of database calls all of that is so cool i just wish i could yeah i don't know i want to build something like that but i don't have to because you already did and i think that's one of the things that i love whenever we end up digging under the hood of you know so many of the libraries that we've looked at or talked about is it just kind of makes sense and you can start really seeing and getting excited about how you would build that out in elixir and why elixir is the right fit for it but I don't know. I don't really have a point. I'm just kind of like nerding out over gin indexes and the plugin and all these things that, as you say, then they just make so much sense. They seem like such an elegant solution. So I don't know. That's what's going through my head right now. Thanks. I, I find it tremendously fun. If I could just do this all the time, I would be a very happy man. As a side note, I definitely want to add that uh, once the CodeBeam talks are published on YouTube, People should definitely check out your talk because your slides, well, I, I guess they're not slides, they're, they're hand-drawn uh, um, uh, images of the, of the architecture are just phenomenal. And you did a great job of kind of going through and saying how all these components are interrelated and how they operate. So I, I, uh, I commend you for putting all that effort into making those, uh, those diagrams. I don't know if I could ever do that. So good work. I always appreciate good engineering lettering. Yeah, I'm very self-conscious about my my tactical lettering abilities, but I'm, I'm, people seem to have enjoyed the slides, so, so it's it's worth it because that's the only time in my life I'm ever going to do that. <laughs> that was something I will not recreate. Actually, I think the talk is live, unless I'm mistaken, and we will definitely include that in the show notes for this episode. And I'll just echo what Alex and Josh said. Your ability to draw, draw straight lines, Parker, is extremely impressive, and I think that alone should recommend open to really anyone. Like if this guy can draw a line this straight, then this library must be the real deal. And yeah, go ahead. I was graph paper for the win on that. Yeah. So still I'm impressed. And I think that's a good note to wrap up on. Uh, Parker, thank you so much for joining us. This was so interesting. You know, I think a lot of us have either just heard of or been excited about open for a while, dipped our toes in a little bit. Sounds like Lars had some good experiences, but hearing the thought process that's been going into it, hearing a little bit about what you guys have been up to recently has been such a treat and I'm really excited to dig into it. And I hope that our listeners feel the same way. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And I'm, I'm glad I got to be the first guest on the new and illustrious Beam Radio podcast. <laughs> yeah, you set the bar really high. So I think uh, our next guest will have to be incredibly, uh, I don't know, articulate and charming, which won't be a problem because our next guest on our next episode, just to get our listeners a little bit hyped, is Frank Hunluck, one of the co-founders of the Nerves Project. So if you're interested in Nerves uh, and you want to really dig into that, we really hope that you guys will tune in. Also, just thank you to Alex for being our main host today and for connecting us with Parker. I think this was such a fun episode. So thank you. Well, one more shout out before we finish up our wrap up. Uh, anybody that caught the beginning of this episode knows that we got our very first fan question in the Beam Radio Process Mailbox, which I'm so into, by the way, the fact that we figured out to call it the Process Mailbox. So please keep hitting us up with your questions. You can just at us on Twitter at Beam Radio One. And of the people that submit questions, we will do a giveaway, some t-shirts, some swag. So send in your questions. We want to hear from you guys and we want to give you free stuff. So it's a win-win. And with that, we will catch you guys on the next episode of Beam Radio. I actually like this Avengers idea, but okay, we'll talk about it. Yeah.